It's July, and we've now been following the nitty-gritty of the smaller-scale farming world for one whole growing year. One revolution of this world around the sun. We've chanced upon and dug up so many stories and met inspirational farmers and growers as the podcast has spiralled from a discussion at a dinner party into an adventure which has led us to uncover new ideas, perspectives and techniques along the way. Hello everybody, and welcome to episode 12 of Farm Llama. This month, we have another bumper crop of interviews and features for you from farms all over the world. You may remember last month I spoke to Pete and heard about his new salad cutting tool. Well, he's back, bringing us garlic galore from the Wasatch Mountains. We missed Hannah last month, but she's back and bristling with enthusiasm as she talks with one of her trainees down on the farm in Dagenham. And Phil reports from his recent trip to Vallis Vedge. And we venture even further afield than Utah as we learn about sustainable farming practices native to Mexico and sample some of the more diverse parts of their diet. See, yeah, yeah, go, 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 go. For the first time. Yeah, it's really good. Oh you're, you're going to love it. I'm not sure if I want to. Go, go, go. We'll find out what Naomi made of those worms later in the show. First, let's head to the wild, vast mountainscapes of Utah, where Sandhill Farm sits proudly nestled below majestic peaks. The arid landscape hidden for now as wildflowers glitter and glisten through the melting snow. The salt lakes are all reds, greens and blues in the distance. The blue cornflowers billow gently as the sun rises and harvesting begins. Radishes, garlic, kale, oregano. Oregano. I'm at my most content when I'm early in the morning or in the evening when it's cool and I'm walking up and down the rows making notes about what needs to be done or what's ready to harvest or what's ready to irrigate. And and so I like that solitary, almost monastic kind of like <laughs> state of being, of, of, of farming and being on the land. Cool. My name is Pete Rasmussen and um been farming at Sandhill Farms in Eden, Utah for this is actually our 10th growing season this year so that's something to to celebrate that we've been been doing it for for that amount of time and we're going to continue doing it. And this this is our tractor driver Joro coming into the scene here. Oh, did you go pee pee? Why are you all wet? There's spitting water all over. Oh, oh that. Yeah. <laughs> I have to go. You have to go. Do you want me to move that wind chime? Do you hear that? I kind of like it. Okay, it's <laughs> checking. It's giving the atmosphere. Garlic loves to grow here. Garlic's native to the, the Tian Shan Mountains of, of Central Asia, the highlands of, of Central Asia. So Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan. Um, the like fertile crescent area there, but 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 high in the mountains and and uh, where conditions are intense. You know they're real hot and dry in the summer and very cold and, and often snow covered in the in the winter. And and so it's believed that garlic's real potent medicinal properties and also 
its uh, intricate flavors are a result of those kind of dramatic growing conditions. Uh, uh, And so northern Utah and the Wasatch Mountains uh, is very similar. And the garlic that we grow is, I think, very potent. You know, it's very very flavorful. um, And I think a lot of that has to do with the the similarities and the climactic... um, um, uh, characteristics that that exist here uh, we grow 52 different varieties of garlic we um, we collect rare strains and we find the ones that we really like and that really perform well and have characteristics that 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 other garlics that we grow don't have and and we grow those those out so for example corona music is one of our uh, top producing garlics that we grow right now. We started with one pound of that strain that I got from a garlic grower from Abundant Life Seed Farm in Port Townsend, Washington. And I remember the day he pulled three bulbs out of the ground and gave them to me just like that. And he's like, these should do. And it was there were three heads that made a pound. Um, and, and this year we'll harvest almost 600 pounds of that. You start with one head with six with six cloves on it. The next year, you have six heads. You save half of those, and you're very quickly, you know, um, expanding your your seed stock of a given variety. That garlic is definitely profitable in terms of its yield per acre, and at the same time, it is it requires a lot of attention and a lot of um, very timely farmer management oh. to to get that maximum profitability and, and yield out of a crop. So it's not something I, I have people call me maybe a dozen times a year that, is, that say, hey, I'm just, you know, sold my house and my car and moved on to two acres of land out in Idaho. And and I've been looking on the internet about profitable crops to grow and garlic comes up and I want to grow an acre next year. And I always tell them to start with a tenth of an acre (laughs) and get their system figured out and everything from when you harvest to when you water to how you cure to where you cure to the temperature it is where you cure to having markets already established and set up because, um, you know, garlic seed is expensive. And so and it does take time to gather for the, the specific seed to get adapted to the new soil and climate where you're growing. Garlic is a sensitive crop. Well, maybe all crops are, are sensitive, <laughs> but but yeah, garlic garlic is unique and it, and it does it does uh, it does bring joy to the farm. That's for sure. You know, my my inspiration as a as wanting to farm also was in the setting of of an educational facility. It was a, a training center for young farmers. It's an apprenticeship program at UC Santa Cruz, and so that has been something that's kind of carried on to the growth or tra- trajectory of Sandhill Farms is to not just have it be a, a produce farm, but have it um, develop into a training center to be able to have um, young people from nearby or even from internationally to come and, and to be here, see how we do things and really have it be a spot where, you know, new te- technologies like the quick cut greens harvester or, anything else a new way of composting a new mix of cover crop where that can kind of be tested and and shared with other with other people you know farmer to farmer um, um, education place abby speaking to pete rasmussen as part of her recent visit to the summit community 
I wanted to further what Pete said there at the end because I was really excited about this idea of the, the summit community is, you know, a collection of well, they call them change makers and entrepreneurs and the fact that they're in such close vicinity with this farm, they're working together to set up a hub. People doing different farming techniques or using different technologies can come together and kind of trial what they're doing and learn out in the field. And I think having more of those is so important because there is a lot of advances going on in the technology world, but there's not really many chances to actually develop those on farm, which is so key to making something that actually works. And and also then farmers will get more of what they want. So, so there's a mixture of non-farmers as well coming and seeing and learning and contributing ideas. Exactly. And what I also thought was really exciting is having an education and apprenticeship side to the farm, as Pete talked about. Um, and that's something we'd love to hear more about from listeners is Maybe if you wanted to share your experience of training or learning on small farms, or maybe there are hubs in the UK where some of this innovation is going on. We'd love to hear about that. Absolutely. And we'll be back at Sandhill Farm soon uh, to hear more from Pete and his partner Katie um, and learn a little more about what they're doing at the farm. Over to Hannah, who's been speaking to Emma Gain, one of the trainees for the Growing in Dagenham project. This is another excellent traineeship programme, but of course this one is a little closer to home. Had you done any farming previously, or what was your conception of working on a farm before? I mean, I wouldn't say farming, but I've done a bit gardening. (laughs) Farming's a bit different, but um, conceptually you think of farming with one animals and obviously we haven't got any there and two countryside and then sort of folks tractors and wheat and huge scale stuff so coming and coming onto a smaller scale farm and doing what we're doing it's it's majorly changed the conception of everything we do i'm 26 i've got a eight-year-old son and i've come from dagnan which is why the idea of growing communities in the area is such like a brilliant idea to us before this, I've done office jobs, mundane work, Monday to Friday, same people, same everything. So working outside in the environment is just something new, fresh, and it's a great idea to be doing. Oh, I love it. Being outside, come rain or shine, is amazing. You used to hate the rain, but now you sort of embrace the rain. You enjoy it, and the sun is great. The only issue is when we're in our greenhouses and stuff, you sort of sweat out a bit, but it's all part and parcel. So what do people think when you tell them that you're doing a traineeship at a farm? They absolutely think I'm crazy. It's, it's not what they expect from me. Yeah, I do their gardening and I'm outdoorsy, but they're like a farm isn't that man's work, and it's oh. it's really not. And um, I think I've sort of shown them that, in a sense, like that a woman can do manual labour and grow stuff and be a farmer, and in the city you can still farm. I mean, going from sitting at the table down a computer to then having to lay, like do labour, in a sense... It's a huge shift, but I think the challenge is so rewarding at the end of it, seeing your end produce, that it's, the challenge seems so worthwhile at the end of it. And it's, I no longer live a boring life sitting in an office looking out. I'm outside looking in and uh, finding it a lot more enjoyable. 
And I know you've been through some challenges with, like, I don't know, uh, council perspectives on whether this traineeship is worthwhile to you or how have you found that? Because I feel like you've had to be quite strong independently to fight to do this kind of work. And do you think that people don't respect farming as much as other jobs or what do you think about people's opinions? Well, I was, I was told by a job centre person to go and get a proper job because, one, my hours weren't up to scratch and, two they didn't like the fact that I was doing a farm job because where I'm down as a trainee, they were like, we don't pay you to train, whereas I go on courses for them all the time and they can still give me my money. So I've had to sort of pull in the fact that I don't now go to the job centre for any help or support, which is it's sort of sad because that's why they're there, that's why the government have put that there, to help single parents, to help people that are in work trying to look for more hours or trying to get any work and then once that then stops and the ball stops rolling with the government funding of job centre and with income support that some girls have found hard, you then go on to the housing benefit side and things get stopped spending. I'm a private renter and then my rent stops and my landlord wants to then start kicking off about the fact I've got no rent coming in and it's a never-ending circle. We're trying to improve our lives, not only by working, but by working for something that's needed to do it and to feel accomplished and have my son say to me, well done, or like, I'm proud of you, money doesn't matter after that. It's always rewarding, coming into work, meeting new people, especially the volunteers, seeing the crops grow. It's just, it's an amazing experience, and it's something so different to what I'm used to that I'm sort of a bit annoyed that I haven't found it sooner than this. Thanks, Hannah and Emma. OK, on to some practical planting perspectives. In the UK, we've been using crop rotation for hundreds of years as a tool to suppress weeds and keep the soil nutrient-rich. But as it was highlighted at the recent no-till conference, this is just one way of ensuring diverse cropping on your land. Today, we're going to hear about two other ways. First, Naomi reports on intercropping in Mexico. But before that, we hear what she made of those worms. To be honest, it does taste As good. It, it yeah, tastes good. It tastes really good. Wow. We have different products that come from the milpa, and the milpa is a really ancient, improved uh, agroecological system that is based on what we call the Mesoamerican Holy Trinity, which is maize, squash, and beans. The squash covers the soil, prevents many weeds from growing, and helps to keep the soil moist because of the shade. The corn is used to grow beans and it's also the main crop. The leaves of the corn can be used for making tamales or can be fed to cattle. The beans and other legumes provide nitrogen to the soil and along with them there's a large number of wild plants that we eat such as many amaranths and some kenopodium and uh, some solanaceae, such as jaltomate and apipisco, which are two native wild tomatoes. Uh, we also have some insects, such as the chapulines, which are grasshoppers. They're a terrible pest for all of the milpa, but tienes tus chapulines aquí? But we also eat them, and they're really high in protein. What could be a pest becomes a valuable resource. And we have agaves surrounding the milpa or trees. There's, that's in the central area. There's milpa all over the country, but it's different because some areas are nearly a desert, some areas are jungle. 
So even in the capital of the country, there's still these communities that are resisting urbanization and still living in the same way people have growing the same crops. It provides uh, vitamins, it provides starch, and it provides proteins. It provides a rich and balanced diet. And it's also ecologically very logical. It's different from the European organics because the European organics is based on uh, crop rotation, while the Mesoamerican system is based on intercropping. It's very important to do intercrop because over 50% of our caloric intake comes from corn, so we need to be able to grow corn year after year. It's magic that this holistic farming practice is so intertwined with the culture of the food and the communities um, and the way that life is lived in that part of the world. Mm, beautiful. I actually recently spoke to a farmer in the UK who has just begun to trial another approach to diverse cropping. It, it has some similarities, but it's called companion cropping. I'm Jake Freestone and I farm on the Gloucestershire-Worcestershire border um, and when we started talking about cover crops then the mind was whirling then about <laughs> companion cropping and how we can explore that so through my Nuffield connections had a chat with a Nuffield scholar who's um, about to uh, publish in 2016 um, on companion cropping um, had a chat with him knowledge exchange and he was suggesting um, a mixture of buckwheat and vetches which he's used before in his oilseed rape so we tried 70 hectares of that as a trial last year. So that will be harvest uh, 2016 with very, very good results. No insecticides were implied in the autumn to that particular crop. So whether it's um, acting as um, a decoy-type crop or it's uh, sort of sheltering the rape from being, being visible or available. We saved a herbicide. We've put 30 kilos less fertiliser on. So there's some real benefits that's coming through there, regard, not even looking at the benefits to the soil structure, mm -hmm. soil biology... So it's quite important also the ratios with the companion crops, how much of each type of companion crop you sow in, is that right? It is, because you want to get enough kind of ground cover, but without smothering out and swamping out your actual cash crop. So um, talking to somebody that's had experience of it, although it's in a different part of the country on different soil type, gives you um, an ideal place to start. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the first place to go from. And then you can sort of adjust accordingly, depending on your sort of farm, your soil type, your situation, the rotation. But every autumn and every winter is going to be different. So what works one year might not necessarily work fantastically well the next year. We planted two and a half kilos of oilseed rapeseeds to get 50 plants per square metre. And we also planted 15 kilos of vetches and seven kilos of buckwheat. And to be honest, I'm probably not going to change too much um, for, for harvest 17. Um, so that will be planted in autumn 16. Um, we had good ground cover. We had great um, soil mineral nitrogen results in the, uh, in the February following, following the establishment of the companion cropping. And it didn't compete with the oilseed rape at all. So I think, uh, I think from a, a starter for 10, if you like, I think we'll just press repeat on that. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm looking again, having um, listened to Sarah speak today at the Groundswell event, you know, we should be maybe looking at some um, faba beans in there as well. Lentils, I don't know whether we can grow those in the UK. Um, so there's some, you know, some more trials and ideas um, that we're going to have a play around with. That was Abby talking to Jake Freestone. What do we mean by peasant politics? La Via Campesina, the way of the peasant, 
is an international organisation representing around 200 million farmers worldwide. Here in the UK, the Land Workers Alliance is a partner organisation with La Via Campesina, so many of the smaller scale farmers really identify with this group. One of our new reporters, Phil, went to visit Vallis Veg, a small farm in Somerset, to get the lowdown from Chris on neo-peasant politics. Essentially, I think there's four components to um, trying to trying to grapple with the idea of a, of a neo-peasant vision. The first is to do with productivity of land and the productivity of labour. The way that agriculture is being discussed in the modern world is, you know, there's seven billion people in the world and counting. You know, how do we grow enough food for ourselves and grow it sustainably? And lots of different people have different arguments about that. But an argument that I want to push is... Um, human labor itself is is a fantastically productive input i mean you know when you have somebody working a small plot fertilizer and uh, and soil and you know all these other things are important human labor human hands are very productive you can produce a lot in a small area and people kind of say well you know nobody wants to farm anymore and it's not really true historically if we think about peasantries uh, the reason nobody wants to be a peasant is because you get screwed by you know by the political system so when when every last drop that you produce uh, gets creamed off by the aristocracy then sure nobody wants to be a peasant so we need to think about uh, ways of designing a society in which every last drop isn't creamed off I suppose that that sort of connects to the next aspect which is you know having been a a small-scale commercial grower it seems to me you're in a much better position you know it's great producing for the market it's great selling stuff but if if that's all that you're doing if you're just producing cash crops for market it makes you very vulnerable and if you have secure access to land and are producing a good part of your own livelihood then you can go to the market in a much better position much 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 secure a position and that seems to me important the third aspect you know there's there's a lot of discussion about the the feasibility of endless growth and uh, consumerism and it seems to me you know a, a key thing that can be delivered by a peasant agriculture is the fact that um it has a, it has a notion of limits it has a notion of enough you know you produce you know you're basically producing for your livelihood you know you can do other things you can work off the holding you know we need to start thinking about a society that isn't entirely reliant on economic growth and trying to produce more and more and it seems to me that you know one of the best ways of doing that uh, is by opening up and democratizing access to land and and sort of getting people to um, you know to be thinking in a different way you know not not what can you buy for the cheapest uh, price in the shops you know that's kind of magic there through this huge global process that that kind of um, you know distorts and extracts value from distant parts of the world you know you've got your piece of land what can you produce for yourself from it? And yeah, you know, the fourth aspect really is just thinking about that um, uh, politically. You know, how many farmers do we need in a society? What does that mean in terms of equality and justice globally? Uh, you know, because our relative wealth and happiness is predicated on the misery of a, of a lot of other people. Um, and, you know, looking to um, 
some of the historical traditions of of peasant farming societies, agrarian populism. You know, it's a very kind of buried political tradition that nobody really sort of knows about. But you know, big populist movements in Eastern Europe, Russia, North America, Australia. Uh, you know, and and in Britain as well. Historically, so not that we can just sort of um, grab that that sort of politics from, you know, the the late nineteenth century or the eighteenth century and just apply it to, to 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 today. But you know, thinking about how small producers, uh, peasants, small farmers have thought about their place in the world and and tried to create a a politics around it you know there's there's a lot that we can learn even if we have to do it differently and in a, in a new way now phil moore talking to chris mage from Vallisvege, which is the farm he runs with his wife cordelia if you want to explore some more of these ideas a good place to do this is chris's blog which is small farm future which as well as having some great general tips for the small scale farmer it tends to link these in with political issues thanks for joining us this time and for being part of this incredible journey over the last 12 months. The Farmerama team has grown from just the three of us to an ever-widening family all over the place. And we're so grateful for all the support. Almost every show now features a new contributor who's either emailed in or we've met on our travels across the UK and to Italy and all over the place. And here with us today is the newest member of the team. Madeleine, hello and welcome to Farmerama. Thank you. Very happy to be here. And maybe you could tell everybody a little bit about yourself and about what you're going to be helping us out with. I got interested in farming while I was working with the Welcome Trust on an engagement campaign. They were running around the connections between environment, food and health. So it's really exciting to be part of this project now, helping to spread the word on social media and contributing wherever else I can. And on that note, listeners, you should help us spread the word. We're on Twitter and we're Farmerama underscore underscore. And also on Facebook, we're Farmerama Radio. Fantastic. We're really delighted to have you with us. But of course, it's you guys who really make the show. And I hope you'll continue to help us as we move into the next cycle. What do you want to hear about? If you've got suggestions for a theme or topic to cover or a story to share, get in touch and we'll work with you to get it on the air. Let's knit an ever wider web of people who understand the importance and resilience of smaller scale farming.